1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast series. I have Emron Mayer. He's a professor at UCLA, uh, professor of physiology in the Microbiome Center. Uh, he's got uh, over 300 publications, uh, 320 peer-reviewed articles, so not too shabby. <laughs> We're going to be talking about uh, his current research, uh, the role of gut microbiota in modulating brain-gut interactions, and uh, their role in emotion regulation chronic visceral pain and obesity. So this will be great, Emran. Thank you for coming. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. Yeah, so, um, I guess just attacking it head on. Um, how was it first established that there is the um, the possibility or the likelihood of the you know the reality that our gut microbiota affect things like emotion and obesity and other uh, physiological functions?
2: Well, I would say you know the history. If you go in the um, the pre-scientific history of that. I mean, this has been a fairly popular uh, topic in um, in the 18th century. Um, people went through these high colonics. Um, there's some um, a French um, king who actually went through this every day to improve his well-being. And I think it even goes back to, to the Egyptians who uh, believed that there's um, they didn't know that these are microbes or microorganisms, but that there's something going on in the gut that affects well-being, um, both physical and, uh, and emotional well-being. Um, in terms of the the scientific approach, um, there were, um, in the last century, Metchnikov, a person that um, actually won the Nobel Prize, um, who promoted the regular intake of, of probiotics of, of microbes with a potential beneficial effect on on, on, on health um, as a um, you know important um, modulator of, of well-being uh, scientifically this started uh, actually much more recently when um, the first animal experiments came out where people used germ-free animals um, and found that either um, That transplanting, for example, um, fecal material from from mice that had a particular um, genetically determined emotional behavior, you could transfer that behavioral trait into the recipients, uh, into the germ-free recipients, just by transferring the fecal material. And there have been there have been a series of similar experiments uh, since then in 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 mice Uh, mice treated with broad-spectrum antibiotics. there is other manipulations that, that clearly have established uh, that at least in mice, in the mouse model, uh, there is a, a some kind of a relationship between gut microbial composition um, and the metabolites that they produce and um, and, and behavior.
1: I've heard things like, um, you know, 90% of all serotonin is made in the guts. You know, the guts not defined. I guess it would be the, the proximal colon. Um, you know i 've heard that uh B vitamins are made there and that uh you know thyroid hormone t four is uh transmuted into t three there but uh i haven 't found specific places in the literature where they 're saying you know who meaning what species or multiple species are doing it? Have you seen any such thing uh, that you know i 've heard these things and then uh, corroborated them in the literature.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, sticking with the serotonin story, I mean, that is still a, a puzzle because we don't know um, why, you know, the great majority of serotonin is not located in the brain where we, you know, treat patients with depression, with serotonin reoptic inhibitors, um, but it's in the gut and we do know some things it affects, it's it's important for Peristaltic reflex and for secretion of fluids into the into the gut, um, but it's still surprising why we would have this massive amounts there. Now, there's recent experiments from the laboratory of Elaine Shaw at UCLA. She's a collaborator, um, and so she has first demonstrated that that certain uh, microbes, certain Clostridia, uh, play an important role in stimulating the the synthesis of serotonin from tryptophan in in these cells that contain, you know, that are these storage sites, the so-called enterochromophine cells, and that it, this in the mouse, a large percentage of the synthesis is dependent on these clostridialis, these taxa of microbes. And the way they do it, she also showed that, is by um, using... Um, Bi- uh, short-chain um, secondary bile acids and short-chain fatty acids um, to to stimulate these um, this this production. So one important mechanism is obviously that they help in converting um, the amino acid um, tryptophan that comes with the diet into serotonin in these cells. And then she's shown in a more recent study, which is equally fascinating, that similar t- a similar taxa of, of microbes also have a, a molecule uh, that is very similar to the serotonin uh, re- uh, transporter, by uh, which human cells, um, nerve cells and platelets, uh, reuptake the, the, ser- the serotonin that's secreted. So the microbes have a very similar molecule that can take up um, serotonin that obviously must be in the gut lumen um, because that's where the microbes live. And so the current idea is that there is a, um, an intricate relationship between certain microbes stimulating serotonin production. Some of that serotonin is released onto vagal nerve endings and goes to the brain. Others, other portions are released onto the uh, enteric nervous system neurons, to regular peristalsis. And another portion is secreted back into the lumen of the gut where it's taken up by microbes um, sort of completing this 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 circle, what effect the serotonin in microbes has on the microbial behavior? Gene expression is currently under investigation so a um, an unfolding story that I think uh, we don't know the final outcome yet, uh, but it, I think it certainly points to an important role of specific uh, taxa of uh, microbes in tryptophan and serotonin synthesis and metabolism.
1: Something, something you said sticks out to me. When you said that uh, serotonin may directly stimulate the vagus nerve itself. I mean, it wouldn't certainly travel along the vagus nerve. I thought it would have to travel through the bloodstream and then maybe go through the blood-brain barrier to go into the brain. But are you saying that um, there's a possibility that the brain can be directly stimulated and modulated itself using the vagus nerve in the gut.
2: Yeah. And that's another puzzle about this whole serotonin story. So you would think, you know, if if there's all this serotonin stored in these cells, they would just release it into the bloodstream and then some of it would get to the brain and, um, you know, modulate. I mean, obviously serotonin in the brain can modulate most of the basic functions um, from emotions to appetite, to pain modulation, um, but that's not the case because the serotonin that's released into the bloodstream is immediately taken up by, by platelets, and then the platelets carry to distant sites in the body. To our knowledge, to our current knowledge, not to the brain. So it's got to be another mechanism. And also, relatively recent research in the last couple of years has shown that um, vagal nerve endings, so s- sensory vagal nerve endings, form synapse like connections with the serotonin containing enterochromaffin cells, so they 're not just in close proximity but they face they they're tightly connected in a synaptic way with these cells so if um, a serotonin containing cell is stimulated um, from the gut lumen from from microbes, it will release um, serotonin into this synaptic um, into the synaptic gap, and it will activate directly vagal afferents, and then carry it into the brainstem, and from there to other, um, you know, brain centers. Um, again, what role this particular type of um, this component of serotonin plays in our emotions, as compared to, for example, the serotonin that's released from cells in in the in, in the in the brain in the, in the brainstem, is currently not known but it's certainly we know the mechanism is there um and obviously it must have some some role in the overall uh, regulation of of our behavior
1: but that's uh that's kind of a crazy implication because I may, I may be getting this wrong but that means that essentially the brain has a part of it you know again like the vagus nerve that's you know sitting in or around the gut that can be stimulated in such a way as to to directly modulate brain activity as if you were in the brain modulating the activity. It's like a, you know, it's like a a tendril of the brain hanging down into the stomach that can be affected by the stomach directly. Yeah. And that's that's the case. That's crazy.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's exactly the image I think one should have. It's almost like the eye, you know, which is connected through the optic nerve to the brain. Um, You so you could say you have these these gut cells um, located in the periphery in a, in a place where they're exposed to all kinds of, you know, messy things um, and all kinds of uh, metabolites that, that there's a direct access to the brain. Now this, this access cannot be something that um, would affect your, your, your behavior on a minute by minute basis, because otherwise, you know, our brain couldn't really function. Our emotions would constantly switch depending on what you eat um, that's another puzzle, you know. I, I personally think that these are tonic, tonic influences that um, provide a, a background serotonergic tone to the brain, rather than phasic, um, you know, second to second, or minute to minute influences. And but again, you know, to what component that um, what, what what role this plays compared to the serotonin synthesized in specialized neurons? um can we we can't currently answer that that question
1: well, you know this is interesting. this is forming in my mind the could you look at the gut as a as literally a sensory organ of the brain it's a slow informing eye or ear, or you know it's literally like a sense a a sixth you know again I'm not going to be metaphysical about it, but it literally is since we have five it literally is the sixth sense it may not have a tremendous impact or it may have a slow impact or like you said, a a background impact. But that's the feeling I'm getting from what you're saying, that that's the possibility. What's your thought on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, um, so we talked about serotonin. I mean, there's other uh, what we call enteroendocrine cells in the gut. Um, If you put all these cells together, it would be our biggest endocrine hormone producing organ. And um, so one well known example are the are, are these hormones that um, are essential for creating a sense of uh, satiety um, This m p y and um, you know probably one of the 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 most well known of, of of this this group of satiety hormones they are um, located in cells just like the serotonin cells their cousins you know they're, they're comparable but have a different function. So they are being they are being released um, a, again from microbial products, short chain fatty acids. Um, the the receptors on these cells um, match the, the the signals that the, the, that the microbes produce serotonin, um, not not serotonin in this case, but short chain fatty acids, um, secondary bile acids, and these cells then... Uh, release these these hormones. Some of them, similar to what I told you about the entocromophin cells, get onto these by uh, synaptic transmission onto vagal sensory nerves, so they they have the same vagal pathway to the brain. Others get into the bloodstream, um, and in this case, um, they can reach the hypothalamus through the bloodstream, um, and you know are the main mechanisms to create the sensation of satiety after. Uh, after a meal, um, there's um, there's a lot of research on this. You know how these mechanisms become uh, compromised, so satiety doesn't set in, and it leads to overeating. Um, in, in in mouse models, that a high fat diet would basically downregulate the sensitivity of these cells, so you would not mice would not get sufficient uh, satiety and keep eating. Um, and there's there's several of, of of these cells there's also in the in the stomach um, cells that contain this um, this hormone ghrelin. Um It's the only gastrointestinal hormone that actually stimulates appetite and um, food intake and and again they, there is influences from microbes on um, on this cell as well so um what you said is is absolutely right. I mean, the gut is probably the biggest sensory organ that we have. It's the surface area. If you spread it out, um, all these villi and microvilli, if you spread all this out onto a flat surface, it would be the size of a basketball court. Um, and that surface is studded with all these sensors. Um, and to make it even more complicated, the sensors... Um, these different chemicals that they release interact with each other. Um, And so you have a, I would say, in our body, certainly the most sophisticated sensory organ that informs the brain about many aspects of, um, you know, food intake, but also as we talked about earlier about um, emotional context, emotional state, um, and I would say we just, you know, even though the, the science is already pretty exciting, I, I think we're just at the beginning, really, of understanding the entire system. Um, and we'll probably, you know, this intense effort, research effort, goes into this. But I would say within ten years we'll have a, a pretty complete understanding, and which obviously will open up possibilities for for therapeutic interventions, you know, on on a, on a large scale.
1: Well, this. Yes. I mean, since obviously food is super important, otherwise, you know, we don't live and food, you know, in our, okay, so we eat food, you know, maybe not in the mouth or the esophagus, but once it gets to the gut, you know, once it gets to the stomach and then the intestines, now it's, it's either going to be integrated into our body or not. And it's from the outside world. So it makes sense that the stomach and, the you know, the gut, it's a, it's a critical place. It's a, an intake source or or location of where we're getting our again our nutrients so it really needs to be monitored and it makes sense that this is a sixth sense but i wonder if you were to rank the senses you know hearing sight touch etc this seems to be the most microbe mediated or microbe controlled you know like eyesight i do know from the literature there is a microbiome of the eye but the main functioning and control mechanism in the eye appears to be the, you know, the somatic cells of the eye themselves as with other senses in our body. But this sense, if we're to to call it a sense, appears to be again the most microbe mediated and or controlled of all the senses.
2: No, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, every surface um, in our body has a microbial um, community uh, ecosystem. So the skin you know, the urinary system, uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, our our entire surface is covered with microbes and they're all specialized and they make, they they produce, you know, particular molecules or or mediators that, um, have some influence, but clearly in terms of influencing such vital things like ingestive behavior, essential for survival, um, um, pain perception, um, emotional behavior, um, I don't think there's, there's any system, and, and we can't, just, can't say this today already, you know, with our limited knowledge, I, I don't think there's any system that is that closely connected to to the microbial world. And, you know, it, it, it does make a lot of sense from, if you go back in, in evolution, the first um, marine animals is called the hydra, these tiny animals, which were essentially floating digestive tracts that were surrounded by a a nerve net that regulated the the peristalsis of that floating gut. Um, and when I say floating gut, so basically this tube had an opening on one side where it sucked in um, water from from the outside and at the an, 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 an opposite end would expel um, un, undigested or unabsorbed components of what it, what it uh, took up. Um, that that sort of this integrated relationship um, that developed early on between microbes, microorganisms living in the oceans, um, and then at some point finding out that it's actually convenient to live inside that tube, because a you know these microbes got free transport, protection, um, uh, unlimited supply of uh, of nutrients. That, that symbiosis of microbes with the both with the digestive system, so the the tube that they lived in, but also with the the precursor of our nervous system, these nerve nets, um, that has persisted throughout evolution. Virtually every every creature today, from insects to you know mammals, um, has that arrangement that there's microbes living inside the gut and these microbes can communicate with with the nervous system, both the, the what's called the enteric nervous system, which was the one that was there first, so it was really our first brain, uh, but also with with our central nervous system, which is really our, our second brain. So it makes a lot of sense that we have this this unique role of the gut with the sensors um, compared to all the other areas of the body that that also um, you know has has microbes living on them.
1: Um, you know, again, the word "gut" is thrown around a lot, and I realized, like, where is the major innervation? Where is the the connection to the the vagus nerve? Is it in the colon? Is it in the small intestine? Is it spread throughout the whole, you know, digestive system? Like, we, if you look at it, where is the majority of the connection happening?
2: It's um it it varies with species. Um, I think all species share the same um, innervation from the stomach. Um, to the sort of to to the mid colon or th- towards you know uh, the last third of the colon, um, the last third of the colon in humans apparently is not as densely innovated or not innovated by the vegas at all. Um, I think in some mice that, 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 that innovation exists, but the, you could say that in humans um, the entire GI tract is is innovated all the way down to the last third of the colon. And I mean, that's important also in terms of the, you know, the microbial communication with the vagus nerve, because even though the the highest numbers of microbes are in the colon, um, there's lots of them starting really in the, in the beginning of the intestine, you know, from, from the proximal jejunum uh, down into the terminal ileum, much lower, you know, magnitudes of, uh, order of magnitudes lower than in the colon, but still a very large number so I think a lot of the the mechanisms that uh, erroneously are you know blamed or associated with 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 the colon okay. really happen in the in in the in the small intestine because you don't need billions of microbes to signal for example to to these enterochromaffin cells or enterendorine cells you know even a hundred thousand would be sufficient to provide to do that, that, that signaling. So I would say, you know, and, and this is just starting with the development of sensors and smart pills that go down the, the entire digestive tract and sample at different locations of the stomach and the gut. And people have shown that there's distinct microbial communities at all these levels, from the stomach all the way down, you know, uh, to, the, to the mid or end of the colon.
1: Um, Well, one thing I've found informative, and I don't know if this will directly translate, but I think it will. You know, I've spoken to people about the oral microbiome, and there's multiple, multiple niches. There's, you know, on the tooth, above the gum, below the gum, the top of the tongue, the bottom of the tongue, the back of the throat, et cetera. So just in that one area, probably according to cell type, there's a a microbial attachment to each, a different one. And then I spoke to a, a researcher named Florentia McAllister, and she studies, you know, like pancreatic tumors. And she said that the pancreas has its own microbiome, but the pancreatic tumors have their own microbiome. So, you know, then you wonder, all right, so every tissue type in an organism probably has its own unique microbial constituent, its own little, little microbiome, because the, the, the cells there, you know, have different surfaces and make different things and need different things. So I, this is, just, again, just my speculation, but in the human body, I would bet that you know every time the the nature of the cells in any part of our digestive system, for instance, changes, the microbial attachment changes.
2: Yes, and um, yeah, this is also really really important i mean these 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 local or geographic differences in in microbial ecology um, is is obviously crucial. I mean, the way we currently look at the and, and test the system by taking a stool sample is incredibly crude, you know, and it's actually surprising how much science has been made out of this up to now. I, I'm absolutely convinced the next five years this will change dramatically with these with these capsules they can sample in, in different locations and s- either send out information or you collect the capsule at the end um, and just get, for example, um, microbial communities or metabolites from one distinct area in, in the gut, and i 'm sure there 's already experiments in mice. Um, what this has been done you know you can just take out the intestine and analyze in different regions what it 's been shown that there 's very different communities that produce very different uh, molecules in all these sites and um, yeah, what you said is that you know uh, that a tumor um, there 's clearly this bi directional communication between between the host cells and, um, and, and, and the microbes. So the host cells and what they do, what they produce, secrete, can influence behavior of the microbes and vice versa, um, that, that tumors could, could actually, you know, significantly change in a particular region. This, this could be true about, for example, you know, don't even have to go to pancreatic cancer, colon cancer, opening up a, even a diagnostic Possibility in the future that you would, um, you know, if 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 you sampled your, your your colon with one of these capsules and find that the community is is altered in a particular region, this could be a a precursor of a of a of a of a, of colon cancer. You know, um, I, will, I I mean, I always like to use this example or this analogy of um, the soil microbiome. Um, you know. I mean, the soil microbiome is different in different locations, depending on how, um, even though you think soil is something universal, but depending on um, the composition of, of the soil, um, how it's been treated, how much water it gets, um, each of these soils will develop their own microbial ecosystem, which then plays a big role, you know, interacting with, with the plants that are growing in these areas. So this is not a, a static system that, once established early on in life, um, stays the same for the rest of your life. This is clearly something that is is um, plastic and adaptive to to various influences, and it it shows a great variation in different locations in the in the GI tract.
1: Yeah, no, this is this is great. I, 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 what what specifically are you working on right now?
2: So we have gone through a phase of. Um, we call extensive comprehensive phenotyping of um, of people, healthy people and people with different um, diseases or, um, you know, dysregulations of, of, of health. And which is essentially, you know, in our opinion, one, this was the first step that had to be done to really um, say in humans, there is a relationship between microbes and um, for, you know, for example, pain sensitivity or a diagnosis like depression or irritable bowel syndrome. So we're we're just ramping up this phase of cross-sectional um, correlations of microbial communities, their metabolites, um, the meta-transcriptome, um, with um, with with human traits and the human traits we use brain imaging. Um, um, you know battery of questionnaires diagnostic questionnaires so now the whole field is rapidly moving into the next step which is longitudinal studies to which are aimed to prove causality and, and that's still a big question mark you know in mouse models so when you when you look at all the publications on, on mouse models elegant studies um, you know very mechanistic and they provide pretty strong evidence that the microbes play a causative role in, uh, in like emotional behavior or feeding behavior or, um, but that's not the case in, 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 in humans. So in humans, we're still, you know, stuck with these cross-sectional associations. We cannot say do microbes or change in microbes play a role in human depression or in human anxiety or um, autism spectrum. It's all associations in humans. So we are, Um, focused on doing this now in human studies, these longitudinal studies with interventions where you manipulate the gut microbial composition. Obviously, we're limited in humans. We can't do the same thing as in mice, but we can give antibiotics. We can do dietary interventions. And and then hopefully, you know, in the next few years, and these are expensive studies, um, much slower than what you can do in, in, in mouse models, uh, hopefully, we'll get an, an indication about causality in in humans. What these microbes do? I mean, they 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 clearly they must have an effect, you know, because otherwise you wouldn't see all these findings from 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 the mouse models. On the other hand, you know, the human brain is so much more complex than the mouse brain that it's conceivable that this influence of the microbes is much much smaller on human behavior as it is on mouse behavior. So you have to look much closer to actually detect uh, these these causal effects. Um, and if you look at the literature, you know, I think you mentioned this in the beginning, there's um, a big discrepancy between very uh, convincing mouse studies and, um, and human studies that would prove the same point um, uh, in terms of causality. So this is this is our main interest right now to to really provide this this missing link from from human studies, and we're looking at we're looking at healthy people, we're looking at um, individuals, obese individuals with food addiction, um, we're looking at cognitive decline, uh, we're looking at autism spectrum. Um, so those are really the main the, the main areas. M- many of these studies are done in collaboration consortia like the the cognitive decline slash Alzheimer studies being done part of a consortium with the Duke. Um, but, um, yeah, it's so in many ways a, a very exciting area of, of research, certainly the most exciting um, part of my career. On the other hand, still a lot of frustration why we can't provide the definitive proof um, that, that this is important for human disease and, and human health.
1: Yeah, no, it, it is a really, well, I consider it to be super exciting. And interesting as well. Well, Emron, um, unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, I'd like to have you back sometime soon. But uh, for now, though we brought up a lot of provocative, really interesting stuff, what's the best way for people to follow up and read some of the papers you put out? And, you know, take a look at uh, the research you're doing right now. How can they get in contact?
2: So probably the simplest way is um, to go to my website, Um There's a lot of information there from... Um, You know, interviews, podcasts, uh, um, also links links to our our publications, and um, all the other social media channels. Uh, So we also have a a newsletter that we're sending out, where you can sign up on the on the website for that newsletter. Um, And um, yeah, I would say that that's um, and people that want to read, you know, so the the real background on this um, from an easy easily readable. Um, publication the, the the book I published a couple of years ago, the Mind Gut Connection, um, is probably a, a good start for people that are not familiar with the with the field. Um, and um, I should mention I'm working on the second book right now, which is sort of updating the first one and taking it to the next onto the next level of understanding.
1: Well, Emran, very good. I appreciate you coming on the podcast, and like I said, it's been great.
2: Well, thank you for having me fun talking to you
0: you're listening to the future tech health podcast with richard jacobs until i reached age 40 i never realized the obvious that we all have medical issues or we at least have a family member or close relation that had has or will have them in the future medicine and biological systems are the final frontier until we've conquered death figured out how life began cured cancer